You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. The guest on today's show is Alf Pekka. Alf is a former multi-billion dollar fixed income manager and executive with ING and now is a macro expert. On today's show, we cover a lot of emerging ideas in the marketplace like the ECB's fragmentation policy that was recently announced, what it means for actions in the EU and their subsequent responses, whether Italy is potentially turning into the next Cyprus situation, whether the yield inversion will get worse before it gets better, what his thoughts are on Bitcoin, numerous important charts, and much, much more. So without further delay, here's my interview with the thoughtful Alf Pekka. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investor's Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. Like I said in the introduction, I'm here with Alf. Boy, I am a fan. You have some amazing content, especially your Twitter feed, your newsletter. Boy, it's such an honor to have you here on the show. And I know we're going to get into some really interesting topics. So Alf, thanks for coming on the show. Well, Preston, I've listened to plenty of your interviews. It's actually fun to be on, the, on this side this time, to be the guy you'll be interviewing. Looking forward to this. Well, I'm looking at some of the charts you sent over to me, and I can tell we're probably going to have more conversations like this in the future. So for people listening, Alf has provided a bunch of charts. So if you're listening to this uh, in audio format, uh, I would highly recommend that you go back, kind of uh, listen to this, maybe or watch this on YouTube if you're, if you're interested in some of the charts that we're talking about, because we're going to probably cover a bunch of them here. But before we get to that, I want to start off the show talking about this new term that came out of the ECB called anti-fragmentation policy. What the heck is anti-fragmentation policy and what have they concocted this time? It's a band aid to try and uh, basically close a huge wound. And the wound is the structure of the Eurozone Preston. I mean, the Eurozone, and I'm European, I guess my accent is very clear. I'm Italian, can't do anything about the accent, guys. The, the Eurozone is a very fragmented structure, and that's why you need an anti-fragmentation tool. And the fragmentation comes from the fact that we have one monetary policy for 19 different jurisdictions. We have one currency, one monetary policy setting, but 19 different fiscal policies that in principle you try to harmonize under certain restrictions that are never respected at the end of the day. And also you have 19 different economies that have different structural features from each other. We don't have a banking union as well in Europe. So each bank has its own pros and cons and its own structure. It is really a fragmented structure. And when you start applying pressure towards the cracks, you start to see some problems emerging. And that is where the firefighters normally need to come in. And the firefighter tends to be the central bank at the end of the day. Yes. What are they going to do? So I I got the terminology that you just described and we understand the 19 different jurisdictions, but like, how would they put this into application? So like if they were going to, is this just like advanced yield curve control, QE? Like what what is it that they're going to actually perform with this? So the new anti-fragmentation tool is effectively supposed to be a full backstop for uh, country spreads to avoid that they widen to a level where the monetary policy can't be transmitted equally to all jurisdictions. 
This sounds very complicated, but indeed what it really is, is to make sure that Italy, Greece, Cyprus, uh, Portugal and Spain to a certain extent, their government bond spreads measured against Germany, which is effectively the benchmark safety net in Europe. These government bond deals, the spread against those bonds and the German bonds don't widen to levels that signal the fact that investors have lost confidence in the Eurozone to remain a cohesive project. So you need a backstop for weaker countries to make sure that the monetary policy is spread equally across all jurisdictions. And how they think of that, Preston, is they effectively say, all right, we have to make sure that if investors want to sell or short all the Italian government bonds out there, for example, they know they're going to be facing a wall. And the wall is an authority with an infinite, potentially infinite a balance sheet, which is the European Central Bank, that can act as a backstop and can say, you can sell as much as you want, we're going to buy all of that. So the idea is to have an unlimited bond buying tool, but only to use it as a backstop if the situation gets worse and worse. Now, the problem is the conditionality that the European Central Bank had to attach to this tool. It's not like, hey, guys, if you sell Italian government bonds and the spread against Germany goes to this level, we're just going to buy them all. But they also had to put some conditions in there. And the conditions are that the country doesn't need, to be, doesn't need to have macroeconomic imbalances, the country doesn't need to be in an excessive deficit procedure, the debt sustainability pattern needs to look okay. So there are a bunch of conditions that basically have to be assessed by external bodies, the European Commission, the International Monetary Fund, and all other external bodies from, from the ECB. Effectively, the ECB is looking for political cover. It's looking for other institutions to tell them they have a green light to come in and backstop the widening of these spreads. But before these countries can effectively convince all the other bodies that they are implementing reforms, that they are on a good path, there is a time inconsistency issue here because investors are not going to wait for all this bureaucratic body to sit and give a verdict and then wait for the central bank to put things in action. If they feel that things are getting worse, they act very fast and put even more pressure on countries like Italy or Greece than we are already seeing right now. So this sounds really unfair to, if I was a German, I would be hearing this and I'd be saying, well, this just doesn't work. So when we say anti-fragmentation, it's also an anti-fragmentation for those that are typically, and I'm saying typically because I guess they're not net uh, exporters as of present. <laughs> but if I'm yeah. Germany I'm, and I'm hearing this, I'm saying, we've got to get out of this, this situation. Is, is that correct? Or what, what do you think their thoughts are? So right now, the anti-fragmentation tool is effectively what Germany, Austria, Finland, the Netherlands, and all Northern European countries had to give in to obtain something in return. And what they're obtaining in return is the European Central Bank hiking interest rates. You have to think about it, Preston, in a way that if this tool wouldn't exist and it wouldn't be effective at all, every time the European Central Bank would even try to hint that they're trying to raise interest rates, higher interest rates hurt weaker economies, weaker balance sheet economies like Greece or Italy or Cyprus in a disproportionate way. So while Germany, the Netherlands, Finland, or Austria, other countries could and would want to have higher interest rates right now to fight inflation, which is skyrocketing in Europe as well, they actually could never get there because you would have other issues to face with, which is the fact that Italy is at risk of blowing up if interest rates are effectively brought higher and higher without a backstop facility. So it's nothing else than 
giving in something, which is this anti-fragmentation tool, to obtain something back, which is a tighter monetary policy for longer and a more sustainably tighter monetary policy to actually fight inflation, which is becoming a domestic policy issue as well for countries like Germany. So talk to us about Italy. So I've talked to a few macro folks and, you know, Japan immediately comes up with their yield curve control. And then I always ask, where, where's the next place we're going to see yield curve control? And almost everybody suggests that it's going to be in Europe. So talk to us a little bit about that idea and also what's happening in Italy right now and just your general thoughts. Yeah. So the uh, idea behind yield curve control is that you as the monetary policy effectively have an infinite balance sheet that you can expand in your own currency. And as long as your currency is domestic, is the one you can act effectively have jurisdiction on, you can print bank reserves out of nowhere digitally. You can expand your balance sheet on the liability side via having more bank reserves you just created out of thin air. And you can use these bank reserves to extract bonds from the private sector and effectively exchanging these bonds for bank reserves. So you, you take these bonds away from the system and you say, guys, don't worry about those bonds. You don't have to buy them. I'll buy them. And you give in exchange to the private sector these newly created bank reserves that you just basically created out of thin air. These bank reserves go into the banking system. They remain stuck there. They can't get out. But effectively, the, the private sector doesn't need to worry about absorbing these issuance anymore, Preston, because there is something, somebody else who's doing that, who's the central bank. Now, in yield curve control, the interesting thing is that, as we have seen in Japan, you don't necessarily need to buy all the bonds out there. But you can effectively signal to the private sector that if they want to sell bonds and make yields higher, because as you sell bonds, prices go down and yields go higher. If yields are going higher than a certain level, they would then basically conditionally to that level being hit buy as much bonds as possible to that level to make sure you can never cross that. Because the private sector is a limited balance sheet capacity. We cannot expand it however we want. We need to get credit to expand it. To get credit, you need to have certain features and you need to pay back and to service this newly created credit with cash flows, with salaries, with earnings. For the central bank, it's completely different. They can just expand it however they want. And yield curve control is a smart way to make sure that on a quantitative side, it looks like you're not expanding it to a very large extent because you have this conditionality you just sent as a message to the private sector that as they try to hit that level, you will ultimately expand your balance sheet. And it's a messaging tool. It's a it's a, some sort of a forward guidance tool as well, to a certain extent, that is more qualitative than quantitative necessarily. Now, in Europe, the problem with that is, again, a bureaucratic legislative problem, because the German Constitutional Court has somehow green-lighted quantitative easing programs that they always opposed from a domestic perspective in Germany because of the history with the Weimar Republic and inflation getting out of control. They are really not happy with quantitative easing programs. They sort of green-lighted them. And one of the main conditions the German Constitutional Court put was that quantitative easing programs need to be defined in size. They need to be of a certain defined size. You cannot just say, I will indefinitely print as much as possible if you try and hit this threshold. Generally speaking, German regulators re and, and uh, let's say the law in Germany doesn't really allow that. So when you try yield curve control in Europe, it becomes very complicated because as a central bank, how are you going to defend Italian government bonds saying that you have only a certain amount you can buy, Preston? How big does that amount need to be? 
hedge funds can use leverage. They can also become very, very large in selling these Italian government bonds if they think that you will have to give in at some point as a central bank. They, will, they can try to break the ECB if the ECB commitment is not very strong. So while Europe might be the best candidate from a macro perspective, and I tend to agree, if you understand the legislative issues and the fragmentation within Europe, you also understand that a very extended and effective yield curve or spread, spread control or yield curve control in Europe is also very difficult to apply. I've never heard that side of it. And I, I think that you're, you know, and I, it makes total sense that Germany would have policies like that in place based on the history and, and what they had dealt with not long ago, right? Like this um, 1920s for us seems like it was a long time ago, but it, culturally, I think that it's so near and dear to, I mean, you're only a couple generations uh, removed from that, uh, that hyperinflation event happening that it's still fresh in, in that population's mind. And I didn't realize that you have that still kind of posing a threat to them implementing yield curve control. Now, do you think that that's going to prevent it from happening? Or do you think at the end of the day, they're going to have to do it and the, and the German population is going to have to deal with it in, in some sort of way? Slowly but surely, we're going to get there, Preston, in some form or another. It's going to be a very rocky road ahead. And it's yeah. not going to be simple. But you're seeing that the Germans would have never dreamt of allowing QE in the first place 10 years ago. Yeah. If you would have asked any German, we are going to get the European Central Bank, just print bank reserves and lift all the bonds out there, all of them. For reference, in 2020, the European Central Bank, I calculated, has bought more bonds than all governments across Europe have issued. Try to think of that, Preston, for a second. If you're a private sector entity in Europe and you are a pension fund, you are a bank, you are an asset manager, the central bank is telling you, dude, you want to buy some bonds? I'm sorry, you'll have to compete with me. I'm going to crowd you out. I'm going to take all the newly issued government bonds this year by all the governments in the Eurozone. I, central bank, I'm going to buy them all. And if you want to buy some more, you basically have to compete with other owners of government bonds around there. So you have to bid up the prices to make sure that they can sell them to you. So you're crowding out the private sector completely. If a German would have heard this 10 years ago, he would be like, what? We're never going to allow that. And in reality, we went to that point. Yeah. We went to that point because Europe is a place where fragmentation is very high and cohesion is very low until problems reach a certain degree where the geopolitical importance of the Eurozone and the Euro in general needs to be preserved. And therefore, if the heat in the kitchen is becoming really, really unbearable, at some point, they're going to close themselves in a the room and try to find a compromise solution. It's always a temporary band-aid. But if you keep adding temporary band-aids one across another, then at the end of, the, of it, maybe in 20 years, you can imagine we'll have some sort of yield curve control in Europe. It's going to be pretty complicated to engineer, though, because of these legislative issues and uh, inherent differences in DNA as well. Really, a Spanish guy is a, just a different guy uh, as a different DNA, as a different interpretation of social policies, of economic policies than a German guy has. And those differences will always be there and will be difficult to be uh, bridged. Hey, so I, we talked a little bit about CDS and you had sent me a chart and I'm going to pull it up for, 
for folks to to see here. And if you can just describe this chart that that I'm showing that you had sent, talk to us yes. about the CDS markets, what it is, and then talk to us about this this chart that I'm displaying right now, so people can kind of understand what you're talking about. Okay, so Preston, this is um, a chart I shared on uh, the Macro Compass. It's the free newsletter that I post once a week. And we, we do some deep dives into certain topics. And in this case, we we're talking about Europe. And a CDS is a credit default swap. And those contracts became very famous during the great financial crisis for a bunch of reasons. Well, what they do really, they allow owners of certain risks to have a product that hedges them against the default risk, especially the credit risk. So a risk of the issuer of a certain uh, bond, for example, to default. If you buy a CDS, you're gonna be protected against this event. Now, the CDS product became very, very much famous after the great financial crisis. They are still pretty traded in pretty decent size, actually, to the point that if you look at the CDS market in Europe, there are two different CDSs. One CDS has a regulation that, going top of my head, goes back to 2005, before the great financial crisis. And if you buy the CDS on Italian government bonds under the law of 2005, you will be protected against the risk of default, but this CDS will not protect you against the technical default that Italy can actually incur to if they would choose to redenominate their debt from euro back to lira. And now you can understand that if you bought some bonds denominated in euro, you might not want to have some bonds denominated in lira because if Italy goes out of the eurozone, lira will obviously devalue big times against the residuals in the eurozone, which will be mostly Northern European countries at that point. So you might actually want to be protected against that event too, right? You want to be protected against Italy defaulting, and you also want to be protected against Italy redenominating their debt into their own previous domestic currency called the lira. Now, if you want that double protection, you need to buy another CDS, which is a 2013 or 14 law, one of the two. And this new uh, CDS protects you against that risk as well. Now, why am I mentioning these two CDSs? This chart uh, for people who are listening shows the spread between the two CDSs. So if one protects you against the redenomination, the other doesn't, you can understand the spread or the difference between the two effectively encapsulates the risk of redenomination or a proxy that investors are assigning for the risk of redenomination or how much are they willing to pay more for the other CDS that also protects them against this risk marginally. And the chart shows that the, the proxy for this redenomination risk or what I also call the ital exit risk, so the, the risk that Italy basically exits the eurozone, has actually spiked up very quickly in 2022. This is the result of a couple of things. It's the result of the ECB attempting a tightening monetary policy. And every time they do, which means Preston, they stop quantitative easing. They even suggest they're going to hike. They did a hike of 50 basis points, the largest since at least a decade in the Eurozone all at once. They obviously apply pressure on countries like Italy. And the more pressure they apply, the more probabilities there are that theoretically Italy could choose at some point to just release the pressure by exiting the Eurozone. It's a very residual small probability, but it goes up in terms of pricing. The second is that Draghi's government just fell in Italy. So we don't have a government anymore. Literally, we don't. We have a situation where we have an energy crisis, the economy is weakening, the European Central Bank is tightening monetary policy, and we do not have a government anymore. 
which means we're going to run for elections at the end of September. And the polls are showing that we are at best going to get a very fragmented government. At worst, we are going to get an outright European critic slash skeptic coalition. And obviously, that coalition increases the probability that Italy might decide to apply some pressure and try to get out of the Eurozone. Now, you have seen now this proxy for redenomination, which is the difference between the two CDSs, pricing to levels which have, are basically amongst the highest we have seen over the last 10 years. Close to 2018, where we had a government crisis and we really had a government coalition which was outright Eurosceptic back then. So investors are becoming pretty nervous about Italy, and I have to say, pretty, um, pretty rightly so. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. Do you think that it's just 
a matter of time of when that plays out, where they revert back to the lira, or is it something that you think is recoverable that they're that they're going to continue to use the euro, or is is all the math right of all this debt leading us down this inevitable path? It's just a matter of when. I have to say that it's a um, it's a chicken and egg game, or actually it's a game theory problem here because the eurozone is roundabout convenient enough for all the members to still be part of the eurozone and why because the northern european countries have benefited from a much weaker currency than in reality they would have had if it wasn't for the euro they would have had a a deutsche mark or a, a another northern european domestic currency which would have been much stronger than the euro was so by design of the eurozone they effectively had this competitive advantage of being able to being export-driven nation for most cases and being very productive and relying on a weaker currency than their structural domestic currency should have been, they effectively have ripped quite some benefits out of the Eurozone. And on top of it, do not forget the geopolitical benefits that the Eurozone brings, which is you can negotiate if you do it smart enough. You can negotiate contracts when it comes to energy security that should be much better than your bilateral negotiations. Italy doesn't, uh, sorry, the Eurozone hasn't done a great job at energy security at all, but in principle, being a, a block rather than a single country delivers these advantages. It also delivers advantages for weaker currency, weaker countries, because you, know, you can argue that also being part of this bigger block to a certain extent allows you to have closer connections to neighboring countries, allows you to have a different weight when it comes to geopolitical negotiations. So the sort of the incentive scheme is just good enough for everybody to want it to stick into it, Preston, while people do not like uncertainty. And getting out of a project which has lasted for 20 years and has brought peace and a certain amount of, uh, of wealth uh, increase over the last 20 years, the uncertainty that getting out would provoke is actually pretty, pretty big. So I think at the end, Europe will try to do whatever it's necessary to try and stick together, it's becoming every time more and more and more. And so it's becoming every time more and more difficult to achieve. So, Interesting. Let's transition to a chart that I think is really easy to kind of wrap your head around and just kind of is useful for kind of understanding the, the longer, well, not longer, but you know, your eight-year cycles. And so I've just displayed uh, a chart that on the top line is just your uh, unemployment numbers. And then the, the line underneath of that is the difference between your 10-year yield and your two-year yield, which is a really popular chart that you see being shared online. Because what that chart is uh, displaying to people is a, a negative yield curve, at least between the 10-year the and the two-year on that bottom line. So Alf, take us through your thoughts in general on this chart, the 10-year minus the two-year in particular, and whether you kind of see that as a leading indicator to a recession and just really kind of all your thoughts around it. Is it reliable? <laughs> it's a, yes. a great place to start. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, the yield curve is a, is, a, is a super good economist, actually, I have to say. It has a almost immaculate track record in predicting sharp economic slowdowns. Now, why do I say that instead of recessions? Because there have been maybe a couple of cases in the past where an inverted yield curve between 10-year and 2-year has failed to predict a recession, but nevertheless has predicted quite a sharp economic slowdown. And when it comes to investing, Preston, and, and you know, protecting our purchasing power, all that matters is that we are able to understand the change in cycles. Is growth accelerating? Is growth sharply decelerating? 
That's all we need to understand. If it turns into a recession, okay, but if growth is moving from four to 0%, well, that's not a recession because it's not negative, but it's damned if it is a strong economic slowdown, right? And so from that perspective, a flattening yield curve between 10 year and two year is a fantastic predictor. So first let's explain why. I think. And then this very nice chart you brought with unemployment rate, which also helps us bring everything into one picture. The reason why a sharply flattening and inverting yield curve between 10 year and two year and two year predicts economic slowdowns is the following. Let's take the example of now. The two-year government bond yields in the US have actually spiked up very aggressively over the last six to seven months. And why? Because two-year government bond yields have to reflect by design the very short-term monetary policy the Federal Reserve will try to force upon markets. A two-year yield is nothing else than the sum of all Fed funds rates over the next two years, you can say. So the discounted value of all the Fed funds future prevailing, we will see over the next two years. Well, you can think the Federal Reserve has quite a weight when it comes to imposing what the monetary policy and therefore the Fed funds will be over the next two years. And therefore markets are somehow forced to adapt their pricing to what the Fed tells them the pricing has to be. This is the short end of the curve, the two-year treasury yields. The 10-year treasury yields, they're a completely different beast. A long-end bond deal tends to reflect the perspective for structural growth and inflation over the next 10 years, right? So if the Federal Reserve is forcing upon us a cycle of tightening, which is going to bring in their head Fed funds rate all the way up to three and a half, three point eight, four percent. But the bond market is smelling, Preston, that these very tight monetary policy stance right now over the next two years is actually way too tight for what the economy can handle because of weak demographics, because of productivity rates which are not exploding, because excessive debt in the public and in the private sector is very hard to be sustained and refinanced if interest rates and borrowing costs are all of a sudden much higher than they were before. What the bond market is going to do at the long end, so 10 years, 30 years, it's going to price that future growth and future inflation will be very weak. So the 10-year tends to price what comes after the two years. So from year three to year 10, what's going to be the contingent result in terms of growth and inflation that we're going to achieve when the Federal Reserve is going to put upon us such higher borrowing costs in the short term? Well, the result isn't going to be great they're probably going to be forced to cut interest rate back all over again to try to stimulate the economy. And that gets priced in in lower 10-year interest rates. And as you see this happening, the shape of the yield curve between two-year and 10-year tends to flatten very aggressively all the way to actually inversion. And the unemployment rate chart you show there also tracks this very, very good. And you can see that as unemployment rate drops, so let's say, let's go from 2012 all the way down to 2020. After the great financial crisis, we did quite some damage, structural damage to the economy. And then we tried to actually fix it, right? So we kept economic policy and monetary policy pretty loose for a long time. And as we did that, unemployment rate actually kept grinding lower and lower and lower and lower, all the way to 3.6%. But look at that. That is also tends to be a point where the yield curve has flattened all the way to and why? Because every time unemployment rate goes under 4%, which is where the Federal Reserve thinks the structural unemployment rate in the US should be, roughly 4%. Every time you cross this level below, the central bank gets worried that we are overeating. And if we are overeating, guess what they're going to do? They're going to try and impose upon us a cycle of tight monetary policy right here, right now. As they do that, guess what happens all over again? 
the front-end yields go up to reprice this tighter monetary policy. The private sector is like, what are you talking about? I cannot handle these rates. It's too high. I cannot borrow at these rates. I cannot buy a house at these rates. I can't do anything at these rates. And the bond market is like, oh, you can't? Okay. So if you can't, I'm going to price that future growth and future inflation are going to come down and the yield curve tends to flatten all over again. Back to 2022, unemployment rate 3.6%. And the Federal Reserve is telling us they need to tighten like there's no tomorrow. On top of it, we have an inflation problem right now that we didn't have for the last 10 years. So their commitment to tighten increases even more, which I guess all over again, flattens the yield curve even more aggressively. So the, when, when we see the unemployment numbers start getting worse and we see, see the spreads go from th- this 10 to two year number that we're showing here, which is a negative number, 0.27 when I captured this chart, and we start to see those spreads become positive again between the 10 and the two year. Is this just a function of fractional reserve banking that this has to unwind? Is it just inherently how fractional reserve banking works? Because a person would look at this and say, well, maybe it can just stay down there. Why, why can it not just stay down there, Alf, when you're looking at it? Well, the reason why this can't stay down there is that if it would stay down there, it would mean the Federal Reserve wouldn't give up on their tightening plans at all, Preston. So it would mean that they would keep the front-end policy very, very, very Mm -hmm. tight, even in the face of the economy slowing down. If they do that, what happens is that as our system is based on continuous credit creation, continuous leverage, we need to feed the leverage beast and the money printing beast every single time. If the Federal Reserve doesn't accommodate this progress, this process, if they keep interest rates too tight for too long, the system doesn't work anymore. Because if mortgage rates, let's make an example. With mortgage rates, I think it's very, very clear. Mortgage rates in America have moved from 3% to 6% in the span of only three to six months. That's the fastest ever increase in mortgage rates that has ever been recorded in the US. Preston, how are you, you, you simply are not able to borrow the same funds and to face a monthly mortgage installment rate at the new mortgage rates to buy the same as of before because borrowing rates have doubled. And so what before the median house in the US after mortgage would cost you whatever, 1500 a month, now it's going to cost you 2500 a month. Are you making a thousand more per month in salary? No, you, you probably are not. Actually, in inflation adjusted terms, you're making less. So what happens is that if the Federal Reserve wouldn't ease and they would keep monetary policy very, very tight, these borrowing rates wouldn't be coming down. And as they don't come down, Preston, we simply can't afford borrowing anymore. Mm-hmm. And if we do not borrow, what happens is that we are not creating new credit. We are not oiling the credit-driven monetary policy mechanism that we have put in place since the 70s. After abolishing the gold standard, what we have basically done is we have made money supply completely elastic. Mm-hmm. There is nothing that pegs, pins hard money supply to anything. We can extend credit every time we want. And there is nothing that is pegging this credit uh, creation to anything. The only thing that is pegging it to anything is the ability to afford new credit creation, which is nothing else than borrowing rates need to be low. And if the Federal Reserve wouldn't ease back all the way again, these borrowing rates wouldn't be coming down again, and nobody would be able to continue to borrow, which would deleverage the system and actually cause a 2008 plus 
sort of outcome that nobody wants. No elected politicians actually wants to have that happen under their watch. I'm going to pull up a chart just of the, of the 10-year treasury. And I'm kind of curious whether you, I think I'm sharing it right now. Can you see it, Alf? The yeah, I can treasury? see that. Okay. Yeah. So this is the 10-year treasury since the 80s. I think a lot of people are familiar with what this looks like. This is the yield, obviously, on the 10-year treasury. And as we look at this, and it's important for people that are looking at this on YouTube, you can see on the y-axis, I have that in log terms, and you can see how the volatility on the yield is just totally blowing out as we're as, yeah. as we move right on the timeline. When you look at this, and we see that the ten-year Treasury got down to it looks like 0.32 percent, which is practically nothing for a ten-year Treasury here in the U.S. Do you see that potentially? achieving a lower yield moving forward? Or is that the bottom of, of this cycle for the 10-year treasury? No, I don't think that is the bottom. So of, of course, with these predictions, you have to think about what is the time horizon for this to happen. But Preston, yeah, what we're yeah. doing here is we are taking a system that is basically built on its, on its core, let's say, and we are leveraging up more and more at each iteration. That's what we are doing. We are financializing the system as much as we can. We're adding leverage on the government balance sheet and on the private sector balance sheet. We are adding complexity and financialization into the system. So every time you have an unwind for some reason, last time you had it for a pandemic, next time can be for a credit crisis, or it can be because of a recession, or it can be because of a default. But every time you have to deleverage a system that has, been, has become bigger and bigger and more leveraged and more leveraged each and every time, it's very simple. The reaction is going to be worse and worse every single time. Actually, you can even see that in this chart. You can see that every time you had a crisis of some sort, the rally in the dollar or in 10-year treasury yields actually tends to be sharper and sharper and sharper. So you're now seeing also the dollar, for instance, Preston, going all the way to highs reached only a decade ago. And the dollar is sucking away liquidity from every, every, everything else. So you will be seeing the next time that you have a systematic crisis somewhere in the world, you will be seeing the rally in 10-year treasury yields that is at least as big as it was last time. That's by the design of the system that has probably added more leverage, more complexity, and more financialization in the meantime, has sucked everybody in. And every time you need to deleverage, the problem becomes bigger and bigger. So I would expect on a long-term basis that every time you see a new problem, the reaction will be even sharper than it was the time before. So with enough time, you're thinking this goes negative. Yes, pretty much. The only negative thing, uh, the, only, the only thing about the negative interest rates that can be politically complicated in the US is that don't forget the dollar is the reserve currency of the world, which means it, it acts as the denominator for about 70 to 80% of transactions and commodities and instruments. About anything is priced in dollars. Basically, that's what I'm saying, right? Trades, invoices, commodities, instruments, anything is priced in dollars. So if you then, what, what this does is it also effectively forces or brings foreign reserve managers, so people who accumulated surpluses in dollars everywhere in the world, to have, again, a large pool of liquid instruments in dollars to be able to actually get their hand on them or sell them or buy more when they need to manage their domestic currency, right? So it's, it's an effects stability mechanism. 
Preston, if you would go to the Arabs or anybody else who has sold commodities and get dollar in exchange for the last 10 years, and you would tell them, okay, guys, so now you're going to be charged for the luxury to own these dollars, because that's what negative interest rates are, right? You're going to be saying to an oil exporting country, you export oil, you get dollars back, and now you have to do something with these dollars. And if you want to buy treasuries, I'll give you a negative nominal return. From a political standpoint, that might be a bit complicated to accept, I would say. Actually, there are many central banks around the world that have somehow limited their euro composition of the FX reserve basket exactly for this reason, because euro yields on German government bonds were negative for so long, and they do not want to be charged for the luxury to own reserves that are resulting from their exporting ability. So they're exporting goods and services, they're receiving dollars back. You want to charge them negative interest rates that can be complicated. Still, you could be headed towards 0%. And I think the path of least resistance for long-term bond yields because of weak demographics, because of productivity trends, which are stagnant, because of a system that keeps relying on unproductive debt, keeps relying on more leverage to make the whole machine oiled, the long-term perspective for, uh, for long-term interest rates, especially real interest rates, keeps being lower, lower and lower. So for people that are hearing that, and maybe they're looking to buy a house in the coming five years or whatever, I mean, they should hold out. If, if you think that the rates could potentially go negative, I mean, they're going to get completely different pricing. But at the same time, the, the prices on the houses will continue to blow out if we keep pushing these yields down to nothing, correct? So Correct. like, what, what does a person do who's, who's 30 years old and wanting to buy their, their first house? Because right now, interest rates are really high. The prices on the houses are also really high after this past year. What do you tell a person like this? They're, they're in a no-win situation, it seems. Yes. Right now, it's, it's really a tight spot. You can't afford anything decent because prices have gone to the moon and mortgage rates have gone to the moon, which make, again, as we said in the part, in, in, uh, previously, your installment, your mortgage installment, completely unaffordable against what you are buying right now. So to make housing more affordable, basically, Preston is to say, you want to make a leveraged, inherently leveraged assets because a house is a very leveraged asset because of mortgages. How, how common is to get a very high leverage on a mortgage to buy a house? It's incredible. So you're talking about a highly leveraged product, highly dependent on interest rates. You want to make that cheaper in a world where we're talking about interest rate being structurally low and credit creation to be the engine that oils the system such that this wealth effect can be reverberated. Unfortunately, that's not likely to happen. And if it happens that house prices are going down, they are going down in a deleveraging process. So if the Federal Reserve keeps monetary policy too tight for too long, there is a moment at which unemployment rate picks up, people don't have a job anymore, uh, house prices are unaffordable because they're too high and mortgage rates are too high on top of it. So the only release valve is for house prices to drop simply because there not, there's not going to be enough demand to meet these high prices and high mortgage rates. But at that point, prices are dropping and you probably can't afford a house anyway because yeah. you are one of the guys that is facing high interest rate, high borrowing costs, and probably you lost your job. So housing prices dropping as the economy slows down, as the side effect of a recession, basically, it's nothing to be particularly happy about. The situation is honestly not easy on housing, and it is the poster child for wealth inequality. It is really the poster child of the side effects of this wealth effect monetary policies we are running, where 
by oil in the credit machine. We make credit access cheaper and cheaper via lower borrowing rates. So the people who can get their hands on this leverage and on these assets, they will become inherently richer by a wealth effect. And people who are late to the game, simply because of demographic change and demographic cohort they find themselves in, they'll have a very hard time getting their, their foot through the door. The only thing that can change all of this, Preston, is actually politics and uh, voters. So if you look at 2028, 2032 elections in the US, the composition of boomers, let's say, voting and the share of boomers amongst the, the voting population will start shrinking. And if you sum all the older generation, they will drop below 50% in terms of voting counts, of voting shares across the voting population for the first time between 2028 and 2032. So as a new cohort of people with different incentive schemes will be voting, perhaps we can shape the politics and the policy making towards something that is a bit more sustainable, that this infinite credit creation wealth effect machine that basically feeds wealth inequality to, to extreme levels. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. 
Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. So before we, we started recording, I said that I wanted to go into the real estate uh, market in China with you. I'm going to share a chart that you provided me. I don't know if this is the right one that you want uh, displayed for this portion of the conversation, but feel free to share uh, your thoughts on what's happening over in China right now from a real estate standpoint. Oh man. So Preston, before we talk about China, we should talk about this chart for a second at least. Yeah. And for people who are not watching, but listening, this is a chart that shows the market cap of all biggest asset classes in the world. So it's total market cap of the global equity market, the global bond market, the gold market, and the real estate market. And now don't cheat guys, but especially if you're not watching, the question you should try to answer in your head is what is the biggest market in the world? And then the answer you'll give me is obviously is the stock market. It must be the stock market. It's, it's so big. And the reality is that the stock market is huge. It's $110 trillion, globally speaking. That was at the end of 2020. Now it's a probably, yeah, probably a bit higher even, but it's $110 trillion. The bond market is bigger. So if you thought it was a stock market, you're wrong. The bond market is $124 trillion worldwide. So it's bigger than the equity market. Gold is roughly $12 trillion. That's a figure that most people are familiar with. Where, what about the real estate market? Would you guess it's 100, 200, 90, 30? Well, summing up the residential real estate, commercial real estate, and agricultural land, we're talking over $300 trillion. It is bigger than the bond market, the equity market, and the gold market all together. I mean, when I, when I, when I first saw the chart, I'm like, wow, I know it's leveraged. I know it's a big market. And obviously, it also has an inherent utility to humanity. I mean, we need to live somewhere in the first place, right? So it has a, a utility scale too, uh, at least a, 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 a utility which is much more tangible than buying a, a stock, let's say, or buying a bond. But the fact that it is bigger than the equity and the bond market combined and the gold market on top of it combined, it's pretty mind-blowing. Now, the, the, why it is so big is because as we explained before, Preston, you can actually lever up your purchasing power on houses via mortgages. And as people tell me off, it's not true. Uh, people in the US buy uh, houses cash all the time. Again, I invite people to look at the big picture. 87% of house price uh, of house transactions in the US, 87% in 2021 were backed by a mortgage. So the mortgage market is underlying the housing market and it's pretty big and it's what, what allows this, this very large leverage. 300 trillion. Okay, that's, that's incredible. Now, what is the biggest geographical single asset class in the world? Must be the US stock market, the US bond market. Not really. So US bond market is around about $20 trillion. And uh, 
the Chinese real estate market, Preston, it's $55 trillion, two and a half times larger than the entire treasury market in the US. And it ranks as number one geographical single asset class as the biggest in the world, $55 trillion. It's gigantic. What's happening over there, it's, it's also pretty large. China's going through a unexpectedly big deleveraging process when it comes to residential real estate. People in China have a problem when it comes to allocating their resources. It's very difficult as a Chinese guy to invest abroad because of capital controls, regulation, restrictions, and the Chinese stock market can be pretty volatile and not representative of the Chinese economy overall. So people have invested and, and basically supported the Chinese real estate market big times and regulators in China have allowed a buildup of leverage, which is incredible. So China has basically expanded their leverage on the real estate market in an incredible way, all the way up to $55 trillion. Most of these projects, infrastructure, real estate projects were actually not very productive, Preston. So we are talking about credit creation for unproductive purposes to a reasonable extent. All of a sudden, China decided that that had gone too much uncontrolled and decided between the end of 2020 and beginning of 2021 to apply some tighter regulation when it comes to financing uh, real estate projects. And as they did, many developers started to have a problem because when you are very leveraged, it's exactly the same mechanism as we discussed before. When you are very leveraged, you are relying on more credit and cheaper credit and luxury regulation. That's what you want, the whole time to oil the mechanism. And as you stop and reverse that, you go through deleveraging. And now the deleveraging, the size and the magnitude of this deleveraging has caught Chinese policymakers by surprise. And we're having Chinese people refusing to pay their mortgage installments on new houses projects, basically that have been promised, that have been delivered by a certain time, that invested in them. And obviously the developer went belly up and they're refusing to pay mortgage installment. And we're witnessing a very large deleveraging process in the largest market in the world which is not covered enough, I think, from a macroeconomic standpoint. So when we look at the, uh, the Chinese market and we saw what happened uh, last year with the Evergrande situation, is there a lot more that's happening behind the scenes that we're not necessarily seeing in the public purview that's just not coming to light? Well, Preston, together with Evergrande, which is a very famous story, if you look at all the indexes which are trying to track uh, real estate developers, across the board and other sectors that highly depend on uh, real estate developers in China, you see that the weakness is not only in Evergrande, actually, most of these sectors have been decimated when it comes to market cap. So you have to think that the weakness is very widespread. And the fact that Chinese people are even stepping up and saying to the CCP, to the Chinese Communist Party, I'm sorry, guys, but you made sure that this leverage machine and this wealth creation machine basically could work, and we rely on that to increase our purchasing power, you can't just you know, stop it and reverse it all of a sudden. Because don't forget as well, Preston, that the Chinese population has received an extremely small percentage of the wealth and, and basically of the wealth that China as a country has been able to create since they joined WTO in, 2000, uh, in, in the early 2000s. If you look at the share of consumption that comes from the private sector in China as percentage of GDP, it is amongst the lowest of every developed and emerging markets out there. So the Chinese people aren't getting 
I don't, I don't, I don't uh, basically getting rewarded for the effort and for being the engine that has been um, basically uh, behind the Chinese growth miracle over the last 20 years. And on top of it, now they're getting damaged when it comes to the, one of the few ways they had to somehow create wealth. It was, of course, fueled by unproductive credit creation, lax regulation, the Chinese um, policy making, actually supporting this machine, but they're not going to stand behind this. And we're seeing weakness that spreads actually beyond Evergrande and to the entire developer sector and also to other sectors which are, um, let's say, adjacent to the, the real estate sector in China. It is pretty big and also it has ramifications when it comes to global macro. China, with its credit creation, has been the engine of cyclical growth all over the world with the big amount of aggregate demand that they were creating because they weren't growing structurally. And on top of it, they were also creating credit, adding leverage very, very quickly. They had such an amount of aggregate demand to export towards the world. And now if you deleverage, you go towards the opposite trend. The Chinese population is becoming older. The workforce isn't growing anymore. And now you're going to deleverage as well instead of adding further leverage. This has ramifications also for other jurisdictions that are very dependent on the demand that comes from China. So we should, we should watch this trend very carefully. And it's not looking good because to stop a deleveraging process is a very, very difficult um, effort. Once it's put in motion, it is very difficult to stop very quickly. Almost like a water wheel that starts spinning in the opposite direction. It just kind of reinforces itself as it starts going in that way. Hey, I'm going to I'm going to throw up a chart here. Uh, describe what what this is and why you find this to be an important chart right now uh, for the people listening. Yeah. So again, this is all about nuances, and uh, I think they are very important in macro analysis. And most of the uh, analysis out there tends to stop at headlines and. I try to do my best to look at, you know, a little bit under the hood, especially on the macro compass. And this as well is one of the charts I published on this free newsletter I write. And it shows Preston that the, it's not only the pace of inflation, it's not only the absolute level, which is above 9% in the US, but it's the momentum and it's the composition of these inflationary pressures, which is freaking the Fed out. And this chart shows the, basically the components of the CPI baskets which are running above 4% inflation year on year. So the CPI is a basket, as we know, of many items. And with this chart, I try to look at how many, in percentage terms, how many items of this basket have an inflation rate above 4%. Above 4% is way above the Fed target, which is 2%, right? And I found out that over 70% of the CPI components are running at over 4% year on year when it comes to the, to the inflation rate. This scares the Federal Reserve big times because you can't say anymore that inflation is due to used cars or other very volatile goods. Everybody's stuck at home and has fiscal stimulus and is buying stuff on Alibaba and Amazon. And that's why we have inflation. With over 70% of the CPI basket above 4%, you can't argue that anymore. So the composition of these inflationary pressures is as important as the absolute level and the pace. The other thing that is very relevant is that the momentum of inflation isn't slowing yet. So if you look at months on month inflation and you analyze that, or you look at three months over three months, so measures of momentum rather than only the absolute levels, those are also accelerating. And you see that inflation is broadening overall, to, especially to categories which are very sticky, Preston, like services inflation, rent of shelter, 
services express ex energy very sticky late cycle baskets of the uh, of uh, of uh, of inflation uh, sorry uh, components of the inflationary basket are becoming are seeing inflationary trends that are becoming entrenched and those you don't bring down very very quickly it's very hard to actually bring this down and that's why the fed is becoming more and more aggressive at each iteration so when i see this and then i think about the the 10 year minus the 2 year that we talked about earlier we were at like negative 0.27% on that chart and i see this and i'm thinking it's going to even go more negative between that spread of the long end and the in the short end of the curve how negative do you think that the 10 minus the 2 can get yeah so this is one of the um, trades that I have on my book. Uh, that's also what I do, by the way. I just share everything I'm, I'm buying, both on a long-term and on a tactical basis. I'm an open book. I've managed money. I know I will be wrong. I have nothing to hide. It's full honesty from my side. This is a trade which is working. So it's a very tactical, relatively sophisticated trade. But what I did is I bought a 10-year bond and I sold a two-year bond and I made sure that I waited that enough, well enough that the only thing I care is the slope of the curve. So I'm betting that this slope between 10-year and 2-year actually goes even more negative. And I'm targeting minus 50 basis point, 5-0 wow. as my next target. I started it when it was positive, way positive. It's been going very well. And I keep on running it because you're perfectly right, Preston. If you're the Fed and you look at this, you, you don't care if you're going to worsen a recession. You don't care if unemployment rate is going to go up. At least at the, in, the, in the early stages, you really don't care. Later on, maybe you'll care a bit more if the damage you're doing becomes larger and larger and larger. But right now, you have rates recap, inflation at 9%. The momentum of inflation is accelerating. The composition of inflation is going towards a trend where you don't like. It's broadening. Inflationary pressures are broadening towards the sticky components of the CPI basket. I'm sorry, but you got to do something about it. And you won't stop Preston until you see results. Now, the interesting thing is there are two things that are interesting is that inflation is one of the most lagging indicators. And in macroeconomic analysis, you have forward-looking indicators, coincident indicators, lagging indicators. And so, for instance, forward-looking indicators would be some surveys that have a statistical significance in explaining how GDP will do in a year from now. And if you look at the service today, they are forward-looking because they anticipate changes in economic activity. A coincident indicator would be maybe the labor market. It's a coincident to slightly lagging indicator. Labor market worsens or, in, or improves only after the forward-looking indicators have pointed towards a certain trend in, in the economy, right? And then the lagging indicator, one of the most lagging of all is inflation. Because to develop or to slow down inflationary pressures, you need some time for all of this to feed into the economy and the elasticity of prices and the consumption habits and all of that. The Fed will be looking at targeting the most lagging indicator of all, which, which is showing its worst behavior, not only in absolute level, but in composition and momentum over the last 40 years, Preston. So they'll be big and they'll be looking in the rear view mirror. They'll be looking at the most lagging indicator and try to slow it down as much as possible. They'll be as hard for as long that I think the yield curve will invert further and further and further. So let me try to rephrase what I think I just heard you say. You're watching the unemployment numbers, and as they start getting worse, then you're going you're gonna to get out of that trade. Uh, yeah, when they get worse enough that I smell the Fed is going to be start looking at those at least. What do you think but that... 
I'm sorry to interrupt you. Finish your thought there and then I'll ask the question. No, sorry. I, I'm just saying that the, the labor market is a slightly lagging indicator too. So before it weakens to a point where the Federal Reserve gets worried enough to consider another item into their equation, it's going to take quite a while. So right now they only have one item. It's an equation of one line. Bring inflation down, 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 down. It's the only thing they care about yeah. right now. Before something else becomes bad enough to enter that equation in the first place, it's going to take a bit longer. When it does enter, then I'm going to be looking for them to actually start cutting rate, accommodate, so that two-year yield can actually finally come down and you don't need to flatten the curve anymore because you can just buy the front end of the bond market and it's going to be okay. But sorry, so you were saying. The real simple question here, what level do you think the DXY gets to? Ooh. Oh, before all so let's this, say, get, you know, change <laughs> the, the, the wind shift the other way. So the DXY is basically about 57% euro against the dollar. Yeah. So let's say euro against the dollar went through parity. It's now roughly a little bit above that. I think we bridge parity pretty easily and sustainably. So that would be my base case scenario. As always, I can be wrong. Um, I would expect 0 0.9, 0 0.95 to be totally doable on a euro dollar, especially Preston, if we are right on them, keeping the pressure on yeah. and yeah. keeping the temperature in the kitchen very high, because they'll be looking not at the pan with, whose oil, frying oil is exploding, they'll only be stopping when the kitchen is off on fire. <laughs> That's what we're talking about. And if, you, if you're talking about that, then you cannot be positive about risk assets. You cannot be positive about other currencies. The only thing you can be positive about is preserving your purchasing power in such an environment is to own dollar, dollar cash, protection, very defensive assets. It doesn't sound fancy, but there are cycles every time. And my role is to make sure that I am looking at macro models that point towards what's coming next and what could be the best asset allocation in this cycle without having my ego attached to a certain asset class. I mean, investing and protecting purchasing power, it's all about being nimble, intellectually honest, and trying to steer your asset allocation according to which cycle you're in. And right now, it's not the cycle to be offensive. It's the one to be, to be defensive. defensive. Yeah. Hey, so I'm a huge Bitcoin fan. In fact, this is a Bitcoin show, but I talk a ton of macro because I think it's super important to just impacting uh, the price. What are your thoughts on Bitcoin and where do you see its role in the, in the future? So Bitcoin, I, I'm, a, I'm a very top-down macro person, Preston. So Bitcoin for me serves as the main uh, indicator for the digital asset space in general. And the digital asset space in general, I treat it as a macro asset class, which means that it has certain features, certain characteristics, certain implied and realized volatility, and certain uh, a certain uh, collocation basically in my quadrant and in my cycle analysis, right? And at the moment, effectively, it tends to behave in the cycles as a, a pretty leveraged risk-intensive asset class. You can see that it, it tends to be very volatile across cycles and its wings are very wild, which tend to appreciate capital and depreciate capital very rapidly. Also, you see that its correlations are evolving in a very interesting way as more institutionals come into the space. And you can see that they treat it somehow as a proxy for tech. You tend to see that, they, that Bitcoin tends to trade in certain part of the cycle as a leveraged version of a tech stock, right? So that is the result of 
institutional investors coming in, having to design and allocate the asset class in their models in a certain role. And the role that Bitcoin tends to have right now, cyclically speaking, is that of a, a risk sentiment asset class, a tech-driven risk sentiment asset class. Okay, so that is, that is the cyclical analysis you can do on Bitcoin, and you can do it on Ethereum, and you can consider that as part of your asset allocation from a tactical perspective. From a structural perspective, that's a different story. So from a structural perspective, you're considering the digital asset space, and you have to ask yourself, what is the role it could play over the next 10 to 15 years? And there are two lines of thoughts that I'm still investigating, and I tend to be very much open-minded. One is the role that the underlying technology has and will have likely over the next 10 to 20 years. The world isn't becoming an industrial world anymore. Whatever people say when they talk about onshoring, when they're talking about the importance of uh, energy and labor and capital being uh, depreciated against labor being appreciated, that's the 70s, that's the 80s. Our business models are not likely to reflect that. Again, they're likely to reflect more technological advancement going forward. So from that perspective, this asset class tends to fit pretty well into that structural development we're looking ahead of us over the next 10 to 20 years. So I have sympathy from that structural perspective. The other theory is a basket of digital assets, mostly the scarce one, let's say Bitcoin, or defined to be scarce in supply, for instance, Bitcoin, to serve as an anchor or a potential anchor when it comes to redesigning our monetary system. And that is the other big consideration that this asset class is in at the moment. And there, I think it is okay to consider it as a potential call option. So that's a theory that many people have, have come across with. And they're like, okay, what is the probability it's going to play a role in re-anchoring a new monetary system? Is it 0%? Well, assigning a 0% probability to something generally in investments is not a smart idea. So if you think there are some good macro reasons why Bitcoin could be more than 0%, part of this basket that anchors the, monet the next monetary system, then only for that very reason, you should structurally own some. So I tend to be extremely open about that. I have some, maybe we should record another session only on this, because of how money works and how we are, we are, we are used to deal with money, it can be relatively complicated to imagine a deflationary system. It can also just thinking about it and designing it in our head as we have been born and raised in an inflationary, in a, in a system where money supply can expand, thinking of a system where it can't expand, it brings a lot of questions around. Can you create credit in Bitcoin? Can you lend Bitcoin? Can you expand its supply at least temporarily until you bring it back? But all these questions need to be addressed thinking that the world isn't becoming a less technological place, it's becoming a more technological place. And also that, to be honest, the monetary system we're living in, as we described it for an hour, tends to be very shaky. And the more time goes on, the more these deleveraging episodes are stronger and stronger and stronger. And the more the wealth inequality tends to widen to a point that you can maybe foresee the possibility we need to redesign it. And so you need to ask yourself, what is the role the digital assets can play in this uh, reshaping effectively? So uh, maybe I didn't give a definite answer and it's very difficult to give one, but at least I hope I gave some frameworks that I'm using to consider the asset class, both cyclically and structurally. I loved it. I loved it. And, and as you were describing that, the deflationary versus this inflationary thing that we just spent an hour kind of describing all the nuances of, I'm thinking of two galaxies literally kind of moving towards each other like this as, as time is progressing to the right. 
What a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for making time, Alf. And uh, for people that are not uh, subscribed to your news, to your free newsletter, we're going to have a link in the show notes for them to, to sign up. And I mean, the charts, the, you know, just a couple of the charts that we shared today, you have tons of these and you have analysis in your newsletter. I highly recommend people to check out that link in the show notes. And if there's anything else you want to highlight, Alf, please, please highlight it right now. Well, Preston, I just want to thank you for the hour we spent together. Your questions are very good. And that's not a surprise for me. I'm used to listen to your interviews. All I want to say is that if people enjoyed this, indeed, they can find much more at the Macro Compass. It's free. There are, I think, 75,000 people reading it. It's quite a lot. So thank you for everybody who's reading that. If you want to find out, you can just Google it. It's free. And once a week, I release a piece, which is you know, my macro analysis and some investment ideas as well. Thank you so much, Alf. Amazing discussion. And thank you for your time. Thanks, Preston. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening. And I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.